Welcome to the Pacey Performance Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with owner of the Kovacs Institute, Mark Kovacs. Thanks for tuning in to episode 178 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. These numbers are really racking up and uh, run, running away with me a little bit. But thanks for tuning in to episode 178. Uh, Mark comes on for a second uh, stab at the podcast for a part two. So I was really keen to get Mark on because um, he's doing a, a bit of speaking over in the UK later in the year that he talks about in this episode. And I wanted to get him on because I wanted to keep the diversity of people that I get on the podcast from different sports, different backgrounds, doing different things. So obviously Mark's made his name in tennis, but he's doing some work in a bunch of different sports uh, on a bunch of different projects. So it's really interesting to see how things have maybe evolved for Mark uh, over the probably, well, I don't know, a year or maybe a little bit more since I spoke to him. So it's always good to speak to Mark. Um, it's been great to uh, to keep in touch with him since part one, um, doing some really interesting stuff uh, over in the States. So in this episode, uh, we discuss... So I wanted to make this episode as practical as possible so you can actually listen to this and take something away to, to kind of think about or change tomorrow. So choosing and developing exercises uh, to improve movement issues and the kind of deconstruction of a movement to identify what is going on um, and especially in tennis when there is so much going on so many small kind of micro movements I just wanted to get into the depths of how Mark would coach coach that and how we would delve into what and, and find out what is actually needed so we also discussed deceleration which is obviously a huge uh, portion of tennis so developing the physical characteristics, um, teaching that, uh, sorry, coaching that and developing that in the gym, and then moving on to coaching that in uh, on the court and actually creating drills to um, identify and isolate certain movement deficiencies. So that's a really interesting part of the chat. Uh, and we also obviously finish off with uh, the most influential books uh, that Mark's come across um, over over his career to uh, influence his life, his, his coaching practice, etc. And that's the real big differentiator is how well you can get out wide from that starting position and still maintain complete balance and transfer your energy and hit your quality shot without increasing your error rate. And that's really what you're trained for when you're talking about movement. You're training to cover more distance in less time while still being stable. There's a lot of athletes that are fast, but when they get to the ball, they're off balance. But just before we do get into this episode, I want to say a big thanks to Vald Performance for sponsoring this episode today. So if you haven't heard of Vald Performance, they are the guys behind the Nordboard, the Groin Bar, and the all-new Human Track. So if you haven't heard of either of them three products, visit valdperformance.com. Uh, I'll follow them on Twitter at ValPerformance. So their all-new Human Track system is a motion capture system which integrates the Xbox Connect and four IMUs worn on both wrists and both ankles. 
So Human Track has been initially validated against the gold standard in Vicon with some really positive initial results with some more to come which will be openly available via the Valve Performance website when they do become available. So if you, like I said, if you are interested in getting to know about any of them three products, visit valveperformance.com or follow them on Twitter at valveperformance. Also sponsoring this episode today is Forstex. So big thanks to Forstex for their continued support of the podcast. And if you are looking for a force plate hardware and software solution, visit forstex.com. But also have a little look at episode 139 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. So that's at strengthofscience.com forward slash 139, where co-owner of Forstex, Dr. Daniel Cohen, goes into a lot of detail with regards to all aspects of jump monitoring. Um, it's certainly not a sales pitch for Forstex, but you can get a real understanding of the capability and ease of use of Forstex uh, as re- with regards to the, the software. So if you are interested, Forstex.com is their website and follow them on Twitter at Forstex. So without further ado, over to the podcast with Mark Kovacs. Mark Kovacs, welcome to the uh, part two of the Pacing Performance Podcast. Thanks for uh, thanks for giving it your time and uh, and coming on. Rob, thanks so much. Always enjoy chatting with you and exciting to be on. Thanks, mate. So I think I can't remember when we spoke last time. It was quite a while ago. But anyone that doesn't know who you are, just want to give us a little bit of an update on education, background, and what you're currently doing. Sure. So, you know, I, I started like a lot of guys in our field as an athlete. I was a tennis player, uh, played at a pretty high level, junior level, and then collegiately and professionally, and then went back and became a strength and conditioning coach, uh, worked across sports for a number of years, and then got really interested in the research world. Uh, went back and uh, did my PhD, emphasized in areas of biomechanics and physiology, uh, a lot of work in detraining and the impact of how that affects athletes as they take time off, uh, and then worked with the U.S. Tennis Association, headed up their sports science and coaching education areas for a number of years, uh, and then moved over and was the director of the Gatorade Sports Science Institute uh, and worked in the areas with the uh, athlete support, working with the Gatorade athletes and then also in the research area. And then over the last four or five years, uh, I've been based here in Atlanta. Uh, we set up the COVAX Institute, which is focused on uh, improving human performance uh, in a few different areas. Uh, we have a research division. Uh, we have an athlete testing uh, and training area. And then we also have a sport technology department where we work and advise um, nearly a dozen technology companies in the area of sport performance and injury prevention. Uh, So those are sort of the areas we're working in at the moment. And then also uh, was the co-founder of the International Tennis Performance Association, uh, the ITPA, uh, which is a trade association in the in the tennis industry that uh, crosses over in the healthcare world. Uh, we work with athletic trainers, uh, physical therapists, chiropractors, medical doctors, strength coaches, uh, and some tennis coaches. And we have three levels of education there to help them better work with test, train, and rehab tennis athletes. So that's some of the projects we're working on, and you know, it's 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 a lot of fun because I get to see you know do everything uh, that I like to do, working in sports, uh, but also you know crossing over the fields from technology uh, to performance and to prevention. 
Nice. So do you, with the ITPA, do you link in with the NSCA and the other kind of SNC-focused governing bodies? Yeah, so we, we do quite a few different things uh, across um, different sort of governing bodies and continuing education um, areas. So we've done, we've hosted events uh, alongside the NSCA in the past. Uh, we work closely with um, various groups in the, in the tennis world and also in the um, medical worlds as well. Um, so the environment does cross over between those different departments. So I'd be interested to know a little bit more, if you can say, I know this is kind of maybe a sensitive subject for those involved, but what, what are the technology companies tapping into you for? Sure. Yeah, no, no problem at all. I mean, some of them I have NDAs with that I can't really discuss specifically, but in general, uh, the areas that I'm involved with uh, are in effect related to training, load and recovery, the three broad areas. So work in the hydration space and looking at monitoring hydration better and how we can do that using technology, uh, working in the strength training equipment environment and adding uh, parameters to certain um, strength training equipment companies regarding technological uh, involvement in some of some of what we would consider traditional strength training type environments, whether it's uh, equipment-based and traditional machine-type models, uh, and then adding better parameters to monitoring load and training, uh, also working quite heavily with the wearable tech space uh, with a clothing company uh, that's integrating um, wearable parameters, uh, also uh, in a couple of uh, 3D and 2D digitization companies coming from the military space and working uh, in, in, in the sports environment. So all of them are about strategic development, helping them understand the sports space and the athletic requirements uh, and then also assisting uh, many times as sort of an outside counsel uh, on how they can get better research uh, to test out uh, their technologies and then partner with universities and other research institutions that can do some of the higher level testing that they may need, whether it's validation studies, reliability studies, or uh, also getting them in with teams uh, and athletic departments that can uh, utilize the products to help them expand their knowledge of what's going on and then also integrate with the broader uh, athletic worlds because as we know there's there's a lot of technologies out there very few have good data on them at this stage uh, one because it's quite expensive but two because the technologies are so new that we just don't have the body of work to know do they do they work consistently do they work across platforms and how do they integrate with the various athlete management systems and and software uh, parameters that many of these hardware type companies um, may need to integrate with. So that's sort of how it's focused and uh, it came about through a lot of the work I was doing uh, in the past and through various initial projects that it was basically word of mouth. Nice. So what's the, what's the wearable tech world like in tennis is it been adopted uh, in games in, in match scenarios or is it very much um still in training so yeah most of the actually nearly all the work i do is outside of tennis in the in the technology space but in the in the tennis oh, okay. space yeah but in the tennis space specifically um there's 
not that much in the wearable space at the moment. There's a few racket companies that have sensors in the rackets that provide value. And we've been involved in a couple of those projects, helping them uh, understand what parameters are, are most valuable uh, and then integrating that, uh, which has made a significant difference. Uh, and then there's a few camera systems that are out there as well that similar to in basketball, uh, which, which has really probably done the best job of using uh, the camera system technologies to integrate uh, player movements, player tracking. Uh, and that's happening uh, in, in the tennis world as well. Uh, and there's two or three major companies that are involved in that space. Uh, and that's giving us much better data now about what the demands are, where the accelerations are, things like that. As we know, GPS technology is a little challenging in tennis movements just because of how short the positional data is and how many slight movements change of directions, vertical displacement issues that go on, and the noise that traditional GPS data gets uh, isn't very helpful yet uh, in the tennis world. So we're using other accelerometers um, and inertial sensors uh, to try to get some of that info. And the ITF, the International Tennis Federation, has done a nice job of allowing a lot of various wearable technologies during games. Um, so they have been actually quite accommodating to allow technology uh, during competition. So um, if there are any tech companies listening that are interested in the tennis world, uh, there's a submission process to get your technologies approved during competition. It goes through a process uh, through the governing body and normally it, it will get approved if it, if it makes sense and if it doesn't provide an immediate advantage in, in the course of play. Excellent. So I just want to move on and kind of dive into the, the coaching side and your experience in, in the kind of more hands-on stuff when it comes to tennis. And, and not just tennis, but hopefully people can, after this chat, whether involved in tennis or not, take something away to, to kind of use tomorrow um, or the day after, uh, day after listening to this. But one thing I'd love to dive into is uh, identifying and, and deconstructing movement issues and the, the tiny, tiny bit of um experience that i've had either watching tennis coaches um is is how kind of involved they are on the technical side of things as well as the the physical side of things and how how focused they are on on deconstructing small um kind of inefficiencies that go on in the movement of the of the athlete over on the tennis court but what i'd just like to ask you and, and maybe dive a little bit deeper into where someone would start with that and how you go about deconstructing that movement to actually identify where the focus of your time is going to be with the athlete? Sure. Really, really great question because you, you are right. I mean, tennis, like all sports, have so, has certain nuances about the movement parameters uh, due to the short distances covered, due to the the speed and the change of directions necessary, uh, and due to then having to... Uh, incorporate the stroke as part of the movement parameters. So all those factors cause the athlete to be put under a stress that is a little bit different than traditional linear sprinting or even you know some ball sport movement parameters. So in general, what we talk about is at the younger ages, we definitely want general movement parameters to be developed at a very good level. So you know all the standard running, jumping, hopping, skipping drills that most sports do is still paramount in the tennis world however we do need to 
understand the differences with how tennis positions are incorporated into some of those movements. And that's sort of where we break it down into more detail. Uh, a lot of it has to do with hip position and how the hips open for the strokes. There are four basic stances on any ground stroke in tennis, and those four stances determine how you set up for the ball, how you get to the ball, and then how you recover from that. And as a result, that creates over a 100 different movement parameters that you have to actually be able to put an athlete through to train those. And that's where the challenge is. If you don't know the sport or you haven't sort of trained up in the sport, that piece of it becomes a little more challenging for a general movement um, person, someone that may be coming from another sport. And that's why the tennis coaches many times do teach footwork and spend quite a bit of time on tennis-specific footwork because there are areas of focus there. Unfortunately, many tennis coaches aren't well-trained in that either, though. Um, they've either done things that were misconceptions and were mistaught previously, and they've just sort of you know, continued that misteaching to, uh, down the road, and we see that in a lot of sports. People do things based on how they were taught rather than really what the right physics of the movement will dictate. Um, and that's a big problem because in general, uh, you know, tennis athletes need to be positioning their body so that they can rotate around an axis during the ground strokes especially. Uh, and that's a bit different than just about any other movement sport uh, because they have to make sure they get to the positioning correct. And the way we break it down is we're really looking at the ground up and we want to make sure, you know, our angles are correct, but the angles are a little bit different than, say, if we were going to say, hey, we want the athlete to be an optimum mover laterally. We want to use that for the first couple steps, but then we want to make sure that when they're getting to the ball, they have to adjust so that they can load their hips effectively, they can rotate around uh, their axis uh, appropriately and then transfer their energy in the right patterning. And then the next step in tennis is you have to recover well. So it's not just hit the ball and forget about it. You have to hit the ball, land appropriately, and then explosively recover so that you're in the right position for the next shot. And so it is relatively complex because of those components. Uh, but again, you know, a lot of the general movement parameters are useful, but they don't always transfer that well. Like linear sprint mechanics doesn't really transfer that well to most tennis-specific movements because of we need a more open hip position. Um, we never get into full stride. We're never at maximum velocity, you know, running mechanics. So those factors need to be trained appropriately. So it, it seems to me there's a, ver there's a huge crossover in terms of what the physical guy does and what the technical guy does. Where, from, from your point of view and your experience, is there, a, is there an end point of where one starts and one finishes, or is it very much there has to be that relationship there with the two when you guys are working together to actually fix a problem or enhance a performance? Yeah, it's it has a little bit to do with skill sets. Um, if the physical guy has great understanding of the movement parameters, then they can do a lot of the footwork stuff and add load, add resistance, add stability, add various components that will improve those movement parameters in those positions. If they don't have great understanding and they're maybe implementing a more general movement training program, 
then the tennis coach is going to have to do a little bit more in those footwork parameter aspects of it. In general, the tennis coach most of the time isn't going to add a lot of added resistance. They're probably not going to do, you know, isometric type variations. They're probably not going to do a lot of deceleration training just because many of them aren't trained in that. Uh, whereas the physical person should be adding those resisted or assisted techniques to good movement parameters. Um, and a lot of the time they'll do it without the interference or complexity of having to hit the tennis ball. They'll do it with medicine ball variations, with cable variations, with tubing variations that can focus on the hips, focus on the core, focus on the lower body and the energy transfer and developing that sequencing pattern effectively rather than having the athlete over-focus on how well do they make contact with the tennis ball on the racket. And that's the beauty of having both engaged because one, the physical person can really focus in on sequencing, patterning, loading parameters, making sure we've got perfect uh, energy transfer, whereas the tennis coach can then take what that has been developed and make sure that it's transferring well to the on-court hitting type drills that can re-emphasize the same concepts. However, there needs to be a skill set on both sides and a willingness to communicate to allow that to happen. And the best teams that are the ones that do a great job of communicating and understand what they're working on and what positions on the court, what movement parameters, where the athletes are, all those factors need to be determined in the lesson plans, in the periodization plans, in the daily workouts to ensure that there's a clear crossover. So see, it seems to me that because there's not loads, like you say, the uh, the linear sprinting, there's, things are so different when you're on the tennis court because the hip position and because you're actually having to hit the ball back and there's actually another, another thing involved. Um that it seems to me that in in tennis you've got to really understand the the movement itself to be able to then develop your own um, solution in terms of a drill that's going to actually fix that problem or enhance that that uh, piece of performance. Uh, not not saying that other sports you don't have to, but it seems to me in tennis that has to be that that understanding the movement seems to be absolutely crucial. Is that right? Most definitely, just because there are so many repeat type movements in tennis that are specific. So every time an athlete gets out to a wide forehand, for example, they're going to take one of three major sort of movements out there. So you've got to train all three of those on a regular basis. When they get on a diagonal pattern, their movement steps change. When they get on a uh, deep pattern straight back, like a back and uh, more what would be considered linear, but it's not really linear because the hips have turned. So, but when they're moving back away from the net, uh, that's a certain patterning. So all of those need to be trained appropriately. Uh, and that's where the specifics come in and where the need to understand the movements effectively come in. Uh, because the general training concepts still hold, but we do want to make sure that we're getting the athlete with their hip positions correct, with their loading parameters correct, and then with their recovery steps correct as well after they make contact. So how do how are you as a as a physical guy and a technical guy as a, as a physical guy? How are you ensuring that what goes on from a, a kind of general? And then general slash specific stuff is actually transferring onto the court. 
how do you make sure that is kind of optimized in that time? So, yeah, it's a really good point. It's important because, you know, most programs are set, hey, they're on court, they're doing their technical work with their tennis coach, and then they're off court and they're doing their physical work uh, off court. That's a model that's used a lot around the world, and it's partly logistics. It's partly to work with larger groups and facilities. There's a lot of logistics reasons why it's set up that way. Ideally, we're going to have some sessions like that, but hopefully those sessions start crossing over more where we're actually doing, say, four to six movement patterns using a medicine ball or cables or something like that, and then immediately you go into a hitting drill. And that's how with the athletes I work with and the great coaches that I'm fortunate to work with sort of buy into these concepts. We integrate most of the on-court movement work um, with their tennis hitting sessions and we structure it in a way where they can integrate a lot of this so they get immediate feedback. And we also see when it does transfer and when it doesn't transfer, we can then regress the activity uh, into a movement that will transfer because sometimes – as we all know, the athlete will do the off-court training movement or drill very well. They'll do it nearly nearly perfectly, yet we don't see a great transfer into when they get on court and they have the extra distraction of the ball and the opponent and the timing and all of those factors that they have to integrate, and then they go back to what they know best, which is probably what we're trying to train them out of. So having to integrate this model is really the only way to get great success in the long run when we're talking the movement. We know strength training and power training can be done at a separate time and that will help with some transfer. But when we're talking movement technique and movement mechanics, we really need to have it integrated, not every session, but a good number of the sessions that we do. So it's going to take a very quick interlude in the chat with Mark. So in part two, discuss a little bit more about deceleration and also developing the physical characteristics and coaching um, lateral movement. Obviously another huge part of tennis. Um, so to delve into that with Mark was, uh, was really insightful, as well as finishing off with the standard now for the podcast, which is the most influential books which Mark has read over his career, whether it's to do with uh, his life, um, coaching, or um, you know different aspects of uh, what's influenced him. But just before we do get into part two, I want to say a big thanks to Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. So Fatigue Science, just to give you a little bit of kind of an overall background about Fatigue Science. Fatigue Science uh, have got a background in the military, but have uh, expanded into providing uh, solutions in terms of sleep for professional uh, and elite sports teams. So they were put on to me by the guys at the Seattle uh, Seahawks and a really good relationship with them guys. They create the Ready Band, which I spoke to Ian Dunican about a couple of episodes ago, uh, which has some really interesting um, biomathematical modeling within the software uh, of, of uh, Fatigue Science Ready Band. So if you do want to learn a little bit more about biomathematical bio modeling of sleep, make sure you check out uh, the episode with Ian. So I think it was two or three episodes ago and you can learn a little bit more about that as a concept, not a concept, as a, um, as a model. And uh, obviously a little bit more about Fatigue Science because they're the ones that, um, that have got the 
license to actually sell that uh, as part of their package uh, with the ready band so fatiguescience.com and on twitter at fatigue science so over to uh, the episode sorry second part of the episode with mark and hope you enjoy so i wouldn't want to um kind of focus in on one of the physical aspects that you that you mentioned earlier which was deceleration and i think the reason why i want to bring this up is because it's so um transferable and probably what you're going to say into into other sports as well which obviously caters to a lot of the guys that are going to be listening um so so deceleration in 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 terms of your coaching of it in tennis how again i'm kind of coming back to the how do you how are you integrating what you're gonna be teaching and uh enhancing physically into an actual technical session on the court so you are seeing that transfer from the physical side to the to the technical side. How are you ensuring that that happens on a more on deceleration, which I guess is well more physical? Sure. Yeah. No. Great question as well, because you know the first step is we got to make sure they have general basic strength capabilities that can handle the deceleration forces, uh, and that's usually a chal- an initial challenge, if especially if the athletes haven't been on a structured physical training program. So that's the first step, trying to make sure we have a base level of foundational strength that needs to be incorporated at, on day one of any quality movement program. Uh, so that's where we start always with all the athletes. We you know, really try to get as soon as possible into single leg uh, strength, foundational strength. Uh, and then what we look to work through during this period is making sure they have solid, you know, isometric stability at, at different joint angles where we want them to be. So we'll do a lot of simple movements like single leg wall sits at different hip angles and knee angles to try to develop that uh, and make sure that the athletes are working through those areas of need uh, on a regular basis because we can do as much technical on-court movement work as we want but if we don't have basic foundational strength and stability, uh, we're, we're going to hit our ceiling really quick. And that's always at the forefront of what we do is we've got to make sure that that foundational work is being done while we're slowly bringing along from a technical standpoint. So that's step one. Step two on the deceleration when we're talking about the movement parameters, we want to make sure that they're actually going in to the positions effectively and they're loading through the bigger muscles. In tennis, especially laterally uh, and the multidirectional movement of, of a lot of the athletes, they will qu- be very quad dominant and even you know put a lot of strain on on the knee and the anterior side of the body too early when they're trying to decelerate, partly due to weak glutes and poor hamstring strength. So that's where the priority focuses is retraining their center of mass shift to make sure that they're loading the bigger muscles and we're getting them in the positions that we want uh, because that's really where the big challenges are, that they're just going in to where they're stronger and right now they're not strong enough at the right spot. So we make sure posterior chain training but in a lateral position more so uh, and you're trying to do that with a lot of single leg movements where we're changing the center of mass and then we're adding resistance or assistance depending on what we're trying to do and a lot of vibration type work as well where we're trying to put them in uncomfortable positions but they can still hold those positions because tennis is always played really on one leg 
because when they're getting out on those wide positions, their outside leg is loading sometimes 90 to 95% of their you know, entire body is shifted out there. And then when they're coming down off a last step movement, they're up at three times body weight many times on that one leg just because of the deceleration forces. So we know that they're having to do a lot uh, on, on a pretty small area. I mean, you know, the majority of their forces are going through that outside leg and many of them aren't trained well enough to handle that. Uh, and we see that a lot when they take that extra hop step. So after they make contact, a lot of athletes that don't have the stability and the strength, what they'll do is they'll take what's called a little hop step to regain balance, similar to a gymnast who you know, does a landing and can't stick the landing. They take a little hop to regain balance. We see that on the tennis court a lot, uh, especially in the younger athletes that don't have the strength and stability. So that's an obvious area of focus. We've got to make sure that every time an athlete hits, stops, they need to be able to push and recover without taking that extra step because we know that extra step is time uh, and that's not something we have the luxury of on the tennis court. Our goal always is to take time away from our opponent and increase time on our side of the net. Would it be right in thinking that sometimes the deceleration is um, a problem because of the acceleration of the athlete to actually get to the ball and they're, they're in the wrong positions to then be able to get into the right positions again to stop. So they're in the wrong positions to go, which puts them in a disadvantageous position to stop. Yeah, 100%. I mean, many athletes, they take the wrong step count, just like a hurdler who takes the wrong step count into a hurdle. You know, if you screw up your step counts and you get too close or too far away from the ball, that puts you in a non-optimized position to take the next step. And you're still going to make contact with the ball because they're all at, they're all competitors. The ball's there to be hit, and they find a way to make contact. But it's not an optimum position for the body to be in. So you're 100% right. If their acceleration uh, positions aren't appropriate and they haven't done the right step counts and body positions to get set, then their deceleration is going to be off. And you've got to determine as a coach, is it the – incorrect foot position getting there and body position getting there that's causing the problem or is it just a pure deceleration weakness and instability that's causing it and most of the time it's it's a combination of both because they are somewhat related their ability to control their body their stability things like that but that's why the step counts need to be done correctly you know like most movement environments an athlete's faster when they're in the air than if they have to take extra steps and breaking forces on the ground. So we have to optimize that step count. Bigger steps to the point of not increasing um, you know, our breaking forces and our time on the ground uh, is, opti- is the optimum strategy. The challenge is many athletes, weaker athletes, younger athletes, they struggle with increasing that distance without causing them to spend more time on the ground and slow down on each step. So it's finding that balance and then training them off court physically so they can put more force into the ground in a quicker amount of time. With with such intricate movements and such detail, I'm guessing video is is used a lot with especially the higher level, well, I suppose all levels of, of tennis players, is that right? No doubt. I mean, you know, it's like 
it's like everyone. The more trained you are and the more skilled you are, the more times you've seen a movement, you can pick some stuff up in real time, but you can't pick up those real fine details unless you slow it down and use video. We're fortunate at our institute, we do a lot of 3D work as well, so we can get real narrow on some angles. But again, that's overkill for most athletes. Most athletes don't need that much detail. They're so messed up in so many areas that we got to take care of the basics first. And too many times people go way into overkill. I still, you know, I, I, I've been mentored by some of the best speed coaches in the world and some of them are really technical and they break it down into finite detail and others of them are phenomenally feel-based, but they take care of the details of the basics really, really well. And they're both successful. One thing you did mention there that I've, I've written down to, to bring back up was the vibration work. Um, would you mind just, just running us through what you mean by that and kind of a couple of examples maybe? Sure thing. And when I say vibration, I'm not necessarily meaning like um, vibration platforms and things like that, more so perturbation work uh, or instability work. Not so much on the ground. Most of our stuff is ground-based without the feet being on an unstable surface, but the body is being pushed around a bit. So whether it's using tubing or bands or something like that to to sort of tug on the athlete a little bit and to push them off balance just enough. Uh, you know, sometimes we'll use parachutes on the tennis court, not so much for the pure resistance, but for the instability of the wind that it'll push them left or right, and they'll have to readjust core control, things like that. And then when we're in a more uh, lower velocity environment, when we're working on deceleration and stability or uh, isometric work, We'll actually, you know, we'll, we'll push them around just manually because using manual techniques. So that's really trying to stimulate the nervous system, making sure that the athlete can stabilize core control, glute control, make sure posture is maintained in the positions that we want under these environments. Nice. So one, one last thing that I want to touch on is um, moving laterally, which I kind of, uh, I'm just thinking of the, the um, maybe examples where people who aren't involved in the tennis environment will um, will be able to uh, really really relate to it, but that it's, it's something that I guess is is quite specific in the in the fact that you know you're moving laterally a hell of a lot of the time in tennis. Um, is there any specific kind of starting points that maybe with a, a young tennis player, for example, that you would um, it would be a starting point to develop that that quality of of good lateral uh, good lateral movement? Yeah, it's, it's so important because, you know, in a lot of athletic environments when you're in a reactive world, which tennis is, you're responding to your opponent, you're going to go into a split step. That's the typical term used in the tennis world, in a lot of other sports as well. But that's when you take that hop, that initial hop in the air. I like to actually term it the decision step because you're really making a decision at the top of the movement. Are we moving left? Are we moving right? Are we moving forward? Forward left, forward right, or back left, back right. These sort of, you know, your your main options or linear, straight ahead or straight back. So you, you really have those six positions that you could move into uh, out of any split step or decision step position. So just to, for clarity purposes, that's when you jump and, and you're off the ground. You actually determined where you're moving before you land. So one foot comes down and it's you it's the foot that's in the opposite direction to where you're going to move and as that lands that's your stability leg 
the other leg is going to be the the hip that externally rotates and you're going to point in the direction that you're going to move. Depending on how efficient you are in this movement really determines how quick you are. So first step quickness in tennis is a big part of it and a lot of athletes don't do this very well. So we always try to get the athlete to start and develop that great first step ability based on understanding the split step or the decision step. From that position, then it's about okay, how explosive can we be after we land and then take that first and second step because most good movers on a tennis court don't take more than three steps anywhere on the court, just about. From their initial split, you can cover from one singles line, uh, from the center to one singles line, shouldn't take more than three steps. Some of the best athletes only take two steps. So there aren't a lot of steps to get there. Uh, you know, we're talking uh, about uh, a pretty small area, but it needs to be done with the right footwork patterns and using the ground effectively. So teaching the young athletes to split appropriately, then take that first and second step after the split needs to really be an emphasis from a young age. And the challenge I'm seeing now, unfortunately, uh, not only in tennis, but in most sports, they're trying so hard to get a lot of young athletes into sport that they're playing a lot of games, which is not a bad thing because fundamental games trying to sort of get people enjoying the environment, but they're forgetting about making sure that they're using some right movement parameters. So we still want to train our athletes in these game-based environments to educate them on appropriate movement steps because it's a lot harder to get a 14-year-old to change movements than it is to change an 8-year-old. So we want to make sure we don't give up on teaching good movement parameters to the young athletes as well. Is there any players out there that are specifically um, good at that at that in, in the professional game? Yeah, I mean, you know, most of the professional players do a great job with movement. That's really a major separator between the folks you see on TV and the ones that you don't uh, is how well they move and how well they cover the court. Uh, I have a concept, I call it the circle of trust with movement. Uh, there's a position around you, a circumference around your body that you feel comfortable moving to and being stable when you get there. And, you know, a lot of good tennis players have a five-foot circle of trust. They can move five feet anywhere from them and be pretty balanced. The great movers, your Novak Djokovic's of the world, your Serena Williams of the world, Roger Federer's, they can move seven to nine feet from their center of mass and still be as stable as many of these other people that can only move five feet. And that's the real big differentiator is how well you can get out wide from that starting position and still maintain complete balance and transfer your energy and hit your quality shot without increasing your error rate. And that's really what you're trained for when you're talking about movement. You're training to cover more distance in less time while still being stable. There's a lot of athletes that are fast, but when they get to the ball, they're off balance. They're not slow to get there. They're there in time, but they're not balanced to hit the shot, and they make a lot of errors, which is not really valuable on a tennis court to be super fast, but not balanced. That's why it's always fun when you see a phenomenal, say, track athlete. I've worked with a lot of 100-meter sprinters, and we'll get them out on the tennis court sometime, and none of them really do a good job of getting in position laterally because they're never trained to be lateral movers. Uh, so it's really funny. They get to the ball fine because they're super fast, 
but for them to be able to stop, stabilize, and hit the ball is a real challenge. And again, wouldn't mean they couldn't do it. I guess have never been trained like that. Nice. So one last thing. I know we, we're we're a little bit pushed for time, but that that's absolutely fine. Uh, for all the guys in the UK and. Europe and uh, the rest, any of the rest of the world that want to come, but you are speaking at the UKSA conference this year. Um, is there any little teaser that you can talk to us a little bit about what you're gonna what you're gonna chat about to to rope people into? Sure, to, yeah, to come no, and yeah, no, I'm super excited to come over and speak uh, at the conference. Uh, I, I it's, would be my first time speaking over there at this event. I've heard so many great things. I'm friends with a lot of the folks uh, in the organization. I do a lot with the NSCA in the US, but my topic is really going to be focused around the rotational athlete. Uh, so golfers, tennis players, uh, in baseball athletes in the, in the US, uh, bat and ball sports, anyone really that has to incorporate the hip rotation into their sporting environment. We're going to talk about a little bit of the science behind it and where we need to load, where we need to focus, but a lot of it's going to be practical. It's really going to be drills focused, um, how sort of I set up the programming for a lot of the athletes I work with, but really trying to take it in a direction of, hey, we understand where the energy is from and where the power source is. Let's train it that way and let's put our progressions in to optimize that. So I'm really excited about the event. I'm really looking forward to it. And if any of the folks listening, please come and say hello. I'd, l- I'd love to chat and talk shop. It's always a lot of fun uh, listening to everyone and what everyone's working on in their individual environments. Superb. And I've just realized the one thing that I was going to finish on, I've actually forgotten to ask you beforehand to uh, do a little bit of thinking on, but if we if it falls on its uh, on its head, we'll we'll scrub this bit out. But any but two but two books that have been the most influential across well present or across your career that you could kind of identify and and, and say and kind of pinpoint that were, they were the two books that that really made a difference to me, whatever in life in coaching. In whatever it may be, do you have do you have two? Sure thing. Yeah, I've got uh, I've got a lot actually that have made impact. Uh, one of them is actually a basic textbook. It's called Physiology of Exercise. Uh, it's by Morehouse and Miller, um, and it was it was published. I'm actually just flicking through when the, it was published in 1948. So the reason that was that was one of the first books um, my uh, physiology professor gave me to read. Uh, because he said, hey, this information is from the 40s and most of it still holds. This was from the Harvard Fatigue Lab uh, and the University of North Carolina Medical School, uh, and that was published in 1948. There's another book I have similar that was published in 1902. So a lot of these principles that we utilize uh, stem from a lot older than us. I mean, we all hear about these new techniques, these new ways of doing things, the good thing is most of the stuff is still based in solid quality science uh, that lasts the test of time. Uh, so that's one. And then there's another book, uh, The Power of Story. It's by Jim Lair, Dr. Jim Lair, who's uh, a longtime mentor of mine. Uh, he's a sports psychologist by training, but it's really focused on uh, the stories that we as individuals uh, tell ourselves and how that impacts what we do. Uh, so it's great for anyone in the coaching field because most athletes, once we take care of the basic physical components that we know we need to improve on, they then need to perform at the highest level under stress. 
And the power of story is just a, a great resource from that standpoint. Talks about how do you change an athlete's story? How can you help them change their story? And then it's great for them to read as well. So those those are two books that have been pretty influential in in my career. Uh, and there's probably about a hundred others that I could mention as well. <laughs> no, it's all good, mate. Perfect, like it. So um, so where can people get get hold of your work, your research? Learn a bit more about uh, the institute. What's the best place for people to uh, people to head? Sure. So yeah, please um, connect with me on Twitter, uh, M Kovacs PhD, uh, M Kovacs PhD on Twitter uh, and Instagram. So you can, um, I'm reasonably active on Twitter. So I always like to chat with folks there. I get a lot of my good information on there as well. Uh, websites, uh, the Institute is kovacsinstitute.com. Uh, it's kovacsinstitute.com. You can follow that on Twitter as well. We kind of highlight some of the stuff we're doing on a daily basis there with the athletes uh, and then the research. Uh, and then if you're in the tennis world, the International Tennis Performance Association, uh, the ITPA, that website is itpa-tennis.org. Uh, we have our, our World Tennis Fitness Conference each year in Atlanta. It's July 21st, 22nd this year, uh, and that brings together all the leading experts in the tennis world uh, from a physical training standpoint and a rehab perspective. So if any of the folks are listening in the U.S. or want to make the trip over, we always have quite a few folks from Europe make the trip over. So those are some a few ways you can get in touch with me. Uh, always love speaking to folks in the field and learning from everyone. Uh, the, the nice thing is we're, we're in an exciting time with athlete development. As long as we hold to the, the, the base principles and you know really try to help our athletes improve, uh, it's really a very exciting environment that we all work in and live in. Superb. Well, Mark, thank you very much for um, for coming on again. And it was episode 106, if I haven't mentioned that already, when you when you came before. So if anyone wants to tune into part one, um, obviously they can do. But yeah, Mark, thank you very much for uh, giving up your time and look forward to meeting you in, uh, in Milton Keynes in, in August. I'm super excited to seeing you as well. And thank you for everything you're doing. I mean, these, these podcasts, I listen to them on a regular basis and I get a lot of great information. So thanks and keep up the great work as well. My pleasure. Thanks, Mark. Really appreciate it. Thanks for tuning in to episode 178 of the Pacey Performance Podcast. I hope you enjoyed what turned out to be a part two with Mark. So if you do want to catch up with part one, the episode number is episode 106. So roughly, um, probably about a year and a couple of months ago, so maybe 14 or 15 months ago, I chatted with Mark. But yeah, episode 106, if you want to check out um, the first part with Mark. So thanks again to Vald Performance, uh, Forstex and Fatigue Science for sponsoring this episode today. Again, got some cool guests coming up over the next couple of weeks. So make sure you press subscribe on your chosen podcast player. And I hope you enjoyed the episode and I will speak to you very, very soon.